Hey, what's up, everybody? What's happening? Welcome back to another episode of Strange Happenings. Strange Happenings. We thought we would come back and do another one. It seems to be uh, people are digging it, so we're going to keep doing them. And uh, this is a fun one to just kind of go through all the weird things that we found throughout the week on the web. Yeah. Um, you know, we've had a, a, an awesome week uh, live stream last week. With Tom Johnson, we've uh, had Thomas's a episode, fantastic last couple of weeks, and the uh, Serpent Mountain Impact Crater Tour, yeah, little mini doc was he released, was and and that's getting some, getting a lot of love, a lot yeah. of comments, people sharing their stories. We'd love to have you back, Tom. Uh, like I said, <clears throat> yep. we would have kept you longer than is legally possible. <laughs> <laughs> I would have asked <laughs> you so many more questions. Yep. So looking forward to having you back. Um, and uh, so. You know, it's been really cool. We have um, a lot of uh, new subscribers. We have a ton of new subscribers. New new followers on Instagram, Twitter. We should Um, uh, side note that a ton to us might be like 40, 50, 100. (laughs) 100 would jeez them. So what we're saying is we appreciate every single one of you that do hit the like, subscribe, uh, leave a review. Um, It helps us a lot um, be able to keep doing this. Um, and, uh, you know, have kind of that, uh, measuring stick of, do people want us to keep doing this? So if you do like what we're doing, we, we really have a lot of fun doing it. So we'd like to keep doing it if yes. that's possible. Yeah, so, absolutely. Thank you. Um, but, uh, we could start off with some shout outs. Yeah. We got a couple of those. Uh, we've got some shout outs. We have, we've got some, like we said, we got some subscribers. Um, we had, uh, the man in the clouds. Some people have been sending us some things. Yeah. We're putting in the description for a video, uh, that was shot at the, the spiral tail of the serpent mound. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, it, you gotta really put it in 4k and have a, a nice wide screen yeah. to, to it's off to the left. And I think it was found kind of after the fact. Yeah. Um, maybe and, we can just put the link in the show notes. So big shout out to people yeah. uh, like Man, Man in the, in the clouds. clouds sending us the videos yep. and and uh, people sharing their experiences yeah. and the comments of, of the, the videos we put out with, with Tom. And oh, so yeah. <clears throat> uh, good conversations happening all yeah. around. We got Hollywood from the Weird Sister Show calling all the way from across the pond in the UK. What's Thank up, you. Hollywood? We need to check out their shows. Well, I watched a little bit the other day when I had a... A brief half hour in between all the other things I'm doing, but uh, we also had uh, Alex Richard, Heather Kaiser, Maggie Moe, Ohio Grown Eleven, Brad Warfield, Shermanator Osborne. I love that yeah. one. The Shermanator, <laughs> uh, Scott Calvillage, uh, Heather Lamb, Baby John, That's Scott Baby Hamlet. John. That's Baby John. Who's that? Uh, baby John, our buddy that we used to work with at Promo West. Oh, really? What's up, Baby John? That's great. Um, <laughs> personal shout-out for me, especially to Elysium Labs on Instagram. Um, that'll be in the show notes, hopefully, or we can put this up. But um, yeah, Jay Elysium, Jay. Uh, an artist that uh, I started following, just kind of liked some of his stuff, but hit him up, said he loved our show, et cetera. So big shout-out to you, Jay. AI artist. We're talking a little AI We've touched on um, that little, in conversation in the office tonight. about the AI yep. and the artistry. It seems like it's all over the place in every facet. We're going to cover uh, I don't think we have enough time to go through all the conspiratorial <clears throat> underpinnings that I have towards what just happened <laughs> and how everybody was on a computer for the last three years dedicated yep. that AI just, AI just webcam. got supercharged in the last couple of years. But we'll touch on it. We're going to get there. Uh, Baby John. Baby John. <laughs> He's uh, the LD for Clutch. 
That's cool. Yeah. That's great. That's a killer name, though. I do love it. It uh, makes me think of uh, South Park with the so Yeah, anybody Brothers. else? We went through the list. Dave Woolliever, okay. I think, was only the one that I saw. Um, Steven Alexander, because there was Alex Richard and Steven Alexander, I thought. Roger I said that already. Okay. Well. Yeah, I think uh, we covered them. Thank you guys for subscribing. If we didn't, we appreciate you subscribing. Uh, hit us up in the comments. We will make sure to uh, atone for it. So, uh, Take us away, Mike. Where are we heading? Well, so uh, I thought we would start with a an article from, let's see here. So this is from uh, the Eurasian Times, and it's an article. Russia claims shooting down UFO not the first time extraterrestrial activity reported over Rostov Oblast. All so right. there was actually two articles. We decided to go with this one because... This kind they of blends were, they both were, of them. Yeah, so uh, there was... It's kind of the a, most recent, right? And then it goes and touches on... I guess they had multiple pro- times like Projects, this? probably. Uh, I mean, I've read enough about UFOs being shot down over the years and having... Look at what we do with drones. How do we shoot them down, right? You, you shoot an EMP at it. They make guns. Yep. They, they actually developed them over at Battelle Labs. Right, right, right near the hospital. Yeah. Right. That's what they were doing there. So, you sh- shoot a concentrated EMP pulse at it, and you can disrupt the electronics of those drones. But Russia apparently shot down a UFO. Continue on. Yeah. So on January third, a mysterious object that multiple news sources called a UFO was taken down by the Russian anti-aircraft weapons in the Rostov region of southern Russia. The UFO, which witnesses defined as a small-sized object in the shape of a ball, was spotted flying over the village of Sultan Sala at a distance of roughly one and a half miles. Uh, Vasily Gublev, the governor of Rostov Oblast, first announced the news on his Telegram channel. Goblov uh, posted on Telegram that a small-sized object in the shape of a ball had been observed flying in in the wind at an altitude of about one and a half miles. After spotting it, a local air defense targeted okay. the object and shot it down. Trying to think how high up that is, just one and a half. So you're talking what? And um, that's it right there. 7,000 feet up? Wow. Somewhere around there? That, Five I mean, uh, it almost looks like a big mortar shell just shot up. Hold on, I'm going to play that. You know what I mean? Here on my. Let's see that one more time. That looks like... That's so bright. See how it lights up and puts a whole ring of light around? I mean, doesn't it seem like it's... That's at night. Wait a minute, wait a minute, This is being shot at night. It's lighting the whole sky up. Go back one more time. I want to see that. Right, but that's what they're doing. That's it being shot down. That's it going at the UFO. Right. So they're trying to hit it with that. That's why it's bright and it looks like a missile because... That right. thing is trying to hit its mark, and it did. Damn, do you see how bright it right was? That was crazy. But what did it hit? Did you, It just stops in the middle of the air. I know, I get that. I'm just saying, like, if you look, you don't see a ship. Listen to this quote. I urge everyone to remain calm to ensure security, all forces, means, uh, and means are involved. The sky is covered with anti-aircraft defenses, he continued, without revealing the nature of the object. Jesus, Local battle of Los site, Angeles yeah, over there. Local news site... Uh, Pivyet Rostov featured a headline that read, A UFO in the form of a ball was shot down in the sky. A video of a glowing object flying and then exploding in the sky was published by Ostrohanza. Yeah, that's too uh, much. Novus, uh, Caution News. <laughs> I didn't see it. It was the <laughs> page. Okay. <let> me... 
dummy. Okay. Roads. Channel. I can read. There's that word again. Uh, and that's you know that's kind of Limit. the uh, so. You know these these programs and Russia is way more open than we are. They have been for years. Once the Soviet Union kind of fell apart in the nineties, they kind of just opened up the doors to media people, yeah. well, and and a lot of their UFO stories became public. And so, like some of the stuff that they were the technology after Operation Paperclip, yeah. where they bring brought Nazi scientists over to kind of they had a lot of weird projects and things happening. Everybody in, did. in the old Soviet and that's what Union. happened. Yeah, well, yeah, us so and the Soviets all that fall, fell apart. We were fighting over the scientists. Those generals just Nazis. all started talking NASA. about the UFO programs. Yeah. When, when the Soviet Union fell apart. Yeah. Well, so yeah. Russia's oh, been, I never thought about that. Russia's that's been wild. They've had their Never fair share of, of secret programs, huh. for sure. Um, well, it says this is not the first time alleged traces of extraterrestrial activity have been reported in Russia's Rostovo blast. In 2007, after a powerful storm, some fishermen along the Sea of Azov captured a strange, seemingly unexplained 100 kilograms of life form. They thought the strange squeaking creature they had captured on tape with a cell phone was some alien. However, before anyone could confirm these allegations, the Russian fishermen chose to consume this alleged alien, with one of them stating it was the tastiest food he had ever had. Jesus. <laughs> Meanwhile, Lake Baikal is famous for alleged alien encounters, such as sightings by military divers in its depths and gigantic spaceships hovering over its surface. Oh, my gosh. This is, they're talking about Organism 46B. You know what I'm talking about? The alleged, like, underground space alien octopus yes, that, yes. like, was, like murdered i don't know how many russian underwater divers mm-hmm. see that was in antarctica right oh god here we go um antarctica. in 2012 why, bbc why does re- antarctica always pop up i put this tweet out the other day about antarctica holds 80 percent of the world's fresh water that's crazy it's I astounding mean, isn't it when you think about man there's a lot of water <laughs> oh yeah right you know who's got a ton of water antarctica hey ton i don't even yeah it's all locked up in the ice mass yeah 2012 bbc reported that a group of about 50 enthusiasts set up camp near lake baikal in siberia which is thought to be a hot spot for ufo sightings hoping to discover proof of extraterrestrial activity the mission began on rusky island in the sea of japan and ended in moscow in september 2012 lake baikal in siberia has a long history of mystery and has been the location of countless reported ufo encounters during the soviet area the government initially covered these sightings, but the Russian media later made them public. Recent unconfirmed reports indicate that American filmmaker Steven Spielberg is considered making a documentary based on these odd and puzzling claims. However, it is unknown whether there's truth or simply a hoax to this. And the last one they have is April 17, 1987. A group of 13 people in Kermas, Irkutsk area spotted a gigantic flying saucer hovering about 150 meters above them. The saucer had a diameter of 70 meters and was said to have a phosphorescent purple light originating from its center and yellow portholes around its side. That's that's pretty big, 70 meters? Mm-hmm. That's a fair-sized ship. 150 meters above you, that's also fairly low. And that thing's like yeah, right there. Yeah, phosphorescent purple light, that's a, that's a new one. Never heard purple lights on UFOs? I mean, I guess I don't hear a lot of the... Like phosphorescent. That's cool. Mm. Uh, yeah, that was... So I next one, amateur archaeology. 
So this one's wild. This is pretty interesting. I know a lot of people are familiar with uh, these cave drawings in France, kind of when we think of cave drawings and, yeah. and it's brought up. These are the examples that are uh, some of the oldest known pieces of art in the world. So right. it's like when we started developing culture and art and their style of art was, you know, considered uh, the basically just the... the uh, just representational? Of not just stick figures and, and kind of rough... They were getting to... They're actually profile or defining or, a style, right? One dimensionally, they were getting these yeah. animals down, and they were able to record. We saw a bison or a, a, a yep. woolly mammoth, right, or whatever they were hunting, right, or mm-hmm. something like that, or what was in their environment. They could actually represent it that we were aware of what they were doing pretty well, right? right. What they were looking at. Uh, but amateur archaeology sleuth deciphers messages hidden in Stone Age cave art for twenty five thousand years. So this it's a long time. We'll go through it, but um, you know, essentially these uh, these dots that they found in several uh, different images, uh, in different places, in in different drawings of these either dots or lines, right? And it's it could be the earliest form of writing. They're keeping track of something. They're keeping right. track of the seasons. Right. Um, I'll throw you some stats on this. They discovered these 150 years ago. Not that long ago. I'm just saying. Yeah, it's That's a long cool. time for an amateur furniture enthusiast, not an amateur. Oh, uh, to fake it. Paleolithic, whatever you know, archaeologist, furniture, yeah, uh, crafter to come in and crack the code. I love it. Yep. But it's been around for a little while, right? And it's spread across Europe and quite extensively. It said it's uh, decoded, but it appears in at least 400 caves across Europe. Mm. 400. That's a pretty large group of people that are doing the same thing. But what what were they doing? What were the marks? What did it uh, mean? So the Cambridge Archaeological Journal wrote a whole paper on this, um, and uh, basically this Ben Ben Bacon, a furniture restorer by day, spent his night analyzing the photographs of the cave cave paintings. According to the Times, his hobby led to the first specific reading of European Upper Paleo Paleolithic communication. The journal article reads, uh, the code inscriptions that Bacon 67 decoded appear in at least 400 caves across Europe um, and then basically deduced that the Paleolithic hunters, hunter-gatherers would store data about the animals they needed to kill to survive in the, uh, the cave drawings of bulls, horses, oryx, and stags using codes to detail their breeding cycle based on the lunar cycle beginning in the spring. That's wild. So that's kind of what we were just talking about with the Mayan, the 260-day Mayan calendar. Yeah, but they're looking at this to look at the animals Mm -hmm. to figure out when, like, they're ready to give birth. Right. But it's, like, all based on these uh, natural cycles. Yeah. And being able to... Uh, no, but I think they were tracking the animal, too, based on if you had an offspring. Sure. Right? Because they said, for example, a line or a dot would mean months. So four dots or lines would represent the fourth month after the start of spring. Right. Then a symbol resembling the letter Y was used to mean to give birth, mm-hmm. the journal article said. Right. And the position of the Y among the lines of dots or dashes, or dots or lines, would indicate a due date. So it's just wild they say, you know, they were able to record the information about the animals they were hunting. Right, right. And it just totally wrecks this 
Neanderthal clubbing something over the head. Maybe that, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's fights like that today, right? So I'm yeah. sure back then there were some clubs being swung yeah. uh, every, every now and then. But um, what I'm saying is the ability for them to calculate and understand pattern and recognize that. Obviously, look what the art they're able to do, right? It's beautiful. Hidden in their art is their science, too. Yeah. Uh, which is really cool. And uh, Yeah, breeding seasons. So the animal um, was depicted with the dots on that animal. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So, like, if it's going to be a bull or if it's yeah, so a deer you, or whatever, like, they would mark it that way. That's crazy. Right. Um, and the writings were discovered, yeah, only 150 years ago. And I know there was, I thought there were some more photos that there was, a like, a carousel of photos on the website, but... I don't see one. Okay. So next we have, let's see here, the ancient, this Mayan structures, um, which these, this is cool because the, the Mayan calendar, you know, that's the the end of the 2012 and the right. whole scare of the right. end of the world. And um, I got a goddaughter that was born around then on that yeah. day. She's awesome. But there were like three parts to that calendar, uh, and I don't yeah. know where this fits into that. Um, but I'm not super familiar with it. I mean, how many calendars? They have this long calendar, then kind of a mid-range, then a shorthand calendar. I don't know. I'm and 40, and I just together. got to a calendar finally yeah. this Ours year. Ours is very basic, the Gregorian calendar. Like the, that's the first I've ever really kept track of time. <laughs> or had to, I guess I would say, as well. But there's some really cool LIDAR images in here, too. This is evidence that Mesoamerican cultures used the 260-day calendar centuries earlier than previously known. Um, Ancient Mesoamerican cultures were using uh, this calendar based on a knowledge of the solar system far earlier than previously realized. Understanding how these early cultures kept track of time has uh, has provided tricky due to the lack of written sources from the time. But researchers discovered that the use of this advanced calendar system by looking at the astronomical orientations of hundreds of ceremonial structures. In a new study, archaeologists look at the data data from uh, LIDAR scanning that was able to peer through the dense overgrowth of Central America to reveal the presence of long-lost structures. And uh, shout-out to Ron Vaughn for this one. RV. Uh, yeah, Ron, Ron hit us up with this one. Aaron, um, Ron, RV, Vaughn. But it's – so there were th- – among the 33,935 architectural complexes they sifted through, 478 were ceremonial complexes that belonged to the ancient Olmec and Maya civilizations between 1100 BCE to 250 CE. Wow, they found a lot. Yeah. Um, this was the time when Mesoamerican civilizations were in their childhood. That's what's crazy. Yeah. They were in their childhood at this time. Mm-hmm. And they were doing this stuff. That's wild. Right. And then basically it kind of goes on to talk about uh, agriculture being a big part of. Yeah, they shifted from hunter-gatherer to agriculture and grew their own and became more, they said, more modern and sedentary by growing their own crops. And I said. Maize became a huge, huge commodity. Yeah. And then, you know, that's kind of your 
backdrop of your money are your grain stores. Oh, absolutely. Well, you need some place to store the grain, and then the city pops up out of that because the market comes to, you know, sell the grain. Yeah. Um, and sell it to the kingdom. Yeah. But these, this is really cool. There's this LIDAR image. If you scroll down just a little bit more. Oh, it's great. Um, they got one at the top, but. Uh, Kyle, if you scroll down just a tad bit more, there's this really cool LIDAR image. Uh, the complexes were often rectangular in shape, featuring, uh, yep, right there, that one. This is really neat. That's great. I mean, look see how the river symmetrical that is. You can see the waterway. And uh, so the Mere complexes water. were often rectangular in shape, featuring a flat plaza surrounded by rows of mounds, elongated structures, and pyramids, like many of the Mesoamerican structures of this time. These buildings were carefully constructed to align with the sun, moon, and even the planets of our solar system. One of these sites in research is Aguada Phoenix, the largest building in the entire pre-Hispanic history of the Maya area that is believed to have been used as an astronomical viewing platform. It's the largest building from the entire pre-Hispanic history of the Maya. Huge. It's wild. That's also in its childhood, right? Mm-hmm. Infancy. So maybe this is when they were really starting to track and build the mathematics. and. That's really wild. Um, and you know, we're able to get to be able to build these ridiculous pyramids and yeah. what you see in the Yucatan. Yeah. Maybe this was kind of like the beginning of them, like, building these. Like, I mean, you look at that, it could just I be mean, really, really old. But those are... It's not small they potatoes. They look like mounds or earthworks, but... I can't they, build it. They were definitely pyramids. It takes a little bit of time sure. and effort. To, yeah. It's got some work done on it. So cycle for instance a number of structures are positioned in the way that corresponds with the sunrises on february 11th and october 29th separated by 260 days right these findings represent the first clear evidence that the maya possessed sophisticated knowledge of the stars dating back to at least 1100 bc it also is the earliest known evidence of the 260 day calendar now, I have to look up and see if what other cultures had a 260-day calendar. I, 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 I really, really couldn't wonder. even start to theorize. There's probably something here in Ohio that's some weird I'm sure calendar. there's a lot. Because um, they were all about the moon, too. So no one is certain why they used this number um, in the days of the cycle, but theorists range from some kind of numerolo numerological significance, agricultural agricultural scheduling or even the human gestation period since 260 days is almost nine months there you go i, I mean that's that a makes thought, sense but that's to me. also kind of strange i mean i mean don't get me wrong uh if you've never seen a baby be born my gosh that's the greatest magic trick in the world i'd keep track of that timeline <laughs> to know you know what yeah. to be expecting like hey think this is going to happen when this you know <laughs> alignment matches up here i wonder if there was a lot of birthdays on those dates Oh, absolutely. Matching up or near around them. Absolutely. That'd be a good question. Ever the whole village has the same birthday. I would like to see uh, some kind of like, I wonder if there's a way you could judge that or pull that. What were the dates? Uh, February. Uh, February 11th and October 29th. Yep. That's interesting. I'll bet there's a lot of February and October birthdays. Yeah. You know? 
So thought that was an interesting one. I bet. Yeah, no, that's really cool. The dates just keep going further and further back. Yeah. I like this article. I don't know who threw this one in, but disruptive science is slowing, and these sociologists have theories on why. Yeah, this is a Psychedelic Bodega on Instagram. Our oh, buddy. is that where? Yeah. Hey, he sent this thank up, you David. for this thank article you. because I thought this one was fantastic. I'm sure Mikey and uh, Kyle did as well. It got in there, and I had not seen it yet. But uh, it says, lengthier education and a busier publishing ecosystem may have pumped the brakes on revolutionary science by Jack Izzo. Modern science is a relatively new phenomenon that dates to the early 1900s. So says Russell Funk, a professor of sociology at the University of Minnesota, who notes that scientific throughout progressed dramatically through the mid-20th century. Marie Curie won her first Nobel Prize for her work on radioactivity in 1903. Einstein's theories of relativity date to 1905 and 1915. And Watson and Crick published their paper on the structure of DNA in 1953. But in the last 65 years, even as science has grown massively, the findings that shape our understanding of the world stagnated. So we had, from what they're saying here, basically the last big major breakthrough that kind of was undocumented at the time was the DNA, right? The structure of the DNA. So for almost, you know, three quarters of a century here, we're not doing anything. We're not getting anywhere in the reason why um they said that uh, the findings have not kept up with the growth of science since 1945 as they reported in a paper published in the journal of nature on january 4th the rate of big discoveries dis- have decreased across all fields measured including social sciences hard sciences medicine and technology the word disruptive can have many meanings says funk the lead researcher on the new paper it's a very particular way of measuring he says are you carving out and pushing new directions in science are you building off and refining existing stuff? So to measure a paper's distribution, Funk and his collaborators developed a scale called the CD index, which they used to track citations on about 25 million pieces of published research. So there's a lot out there, right? And what this index does is it compares the citations of one paper to those of papers that reference it within five years after publication. If the papers largely cite the same material, Then the authors determined that the reports were consolidating research, quote, which the CD index shows using a negative number. However, if the later generation of papers does not reference the same sources as the original paper, then the CD index considers them to be disruptive, and the number will be positive. While past research on the topic was mostly limited to a single subject, this paper tackles a question across frontiers of science as diverse as astronomy and zoology. The study finds that although... The number of papers published rose dramatically from 1945 to 2010. The number of disruptive papers did not. For instance, while there were about 16,000 medical papers published in 1945, there were more than 510,000 published in 2010. Over the same time period, the average CD index of medical papers fell from 0.21 to almost nothing, signaling a dramatic shift towards consolidating work. The drop was sharpest in the social sciences, where the average CD index started at 0.1 or 0.51 and fell all the way to 0.04, but all areas converged towards zero by 2010. The paper states that this drop is not actually due to less disruptive work being done. The number of highly disruptive papers each year was consistent over the time period investigated. 
but instead the massive amount of consolidating publications is diluting the proportion of highly disruptive papers. Funk notes that it's still somewhat unclear why the increase in papers published hasn't led to an increase in disruptive findings since 1945. One possible explanation the team considered was that more obvious scientific discoveries, which the researchers called low-hanging fruit, have become rarer over time, leading to less disruption. Hmm. Say, for example, it was easier for Isaac Newton to describe gravity than it was for Enrico Fermi and his team to invent the nuclear reactor, for instance. However, if those low-hanging fruit findings are slowly vanishing, their disappearances wouldn't have happened simultaneously across all areas of science, Funk explains. He says he thinks there's still plenty of low-hanging fruit out there. Why else is there a decline? It's not just a simple cause and effect, Funk says, but likely a combination of two main factors, the academic environment and the publishing system. First, as scientific fields have developed, it takes longer and longer for new experts to learn all they need to make important discoveries. Philip Kitcher, a retired professor of philosophy at Columbia University, who is not affiliated with the study, agrees with this view. He says, quote, Look, in some areas of science, you don't get to do your own experiments until you've done not only an undergraduate and a PhD, but a few postdocs, he says. Beyond simply having more to learn, Funk and Kitchener, uh, Kitcher both point to the current publishing system as a large contributor. Funk's other research includes proposals on reworked grant systems, an effort to fight against the publish or perish culture found in many fields. Kitcher says researchers should consider thinking more soberly and carefully about how they allocate their time. In some areas, some scientists and groups of scientists are being pressured to publish too much. The solution for that yep, is to do yep. more qualitative and studied details. In fact, Kisher wished the Nature paper itself had been slightly more qualitative and less reliant on a numeric scale. He suggests that by analyzing the decrease in the rate of highly disruptive findings, Funk is underestimating the importance of consolidating research, which both supports past disruptive results and leads to future ones. In a, in a 1675 letter, Newton said he owed his success to standing on the shoulders of giants. Kitcher preferred, a di- yeah, Kitcher preferred a different expression. Sometimes a giant stands on vast pyramids of dwarves. <laughs> Despite their different yeah, approaches to looking at the progression of science... Kitcher agrees with the conclusion Funk and his colleagues reached reading, uh, regarding the current state of publishing. In some fields, to do their jobs, people are doing research that's not going to add up to much, Kitcher explains. The effect he found isn't necessarily a bad thing for science, Funk says, because if every paper is disruptive, then no progress can be made. He just hopes that science, long known for its resistance to change, might be willing to reconsider some of its methodologies. Maybe the discoveries of tomorrow are just going to look different than the discoveries of today. But at the end of the day, we don't care about papers or patents. We care about ideas, or what he calls the purest form of science. So I'm torn. I don't really know how you take this, right? I mean, obviously, I'm not in the uh, the sphere of writing academic papers, but I know enough people that do. And You have to write. Once you get a, a certain point in your career, you're, I think you're expected have- to write... We have research a, papers. Yeah, we have a buddy that we have a friend. Has a yep. PhD. Uh, mm-hmm. I have a couple, um, and I I've seen their dissertations and their thesis and yeah. these leather bound books of their thoughts, and I I find them fascinating. But yeah. I also think 
like it says with the publishing aspect of it and the disruptive nature of what we find. Peer-reviewed journals. And There's merit in both sides of the coin on that. And I like the quote at the end where he says, you know, but at the end of the day, we don't care about papers or patents. We care about ideas. And I think yeah. that's important. Like, I, Yeah, I think so. Not too. so much There's I got a, a paper written. Yeah, yeah. That's, I just got a paper written. Well, Great. That, what did it do? And what we had talked about when we were reading this earlier was, is it that, these discoveries are just in some black op program that we don't know about. And the real progress in science is just we're, we're not aware of it. Oh, you mean the giant 65-year like leap gap of not having, like, a public known breakthrough? Yeah, I yeah, think I mean, that's all black All the stuff op. that's going on at CERN. I mean, Private, those, corporate, they owned, write about that. IP. Um, a lot of those things. That's, but it's like surface-level stuff, you know. The big breakthroughs in understanding quantum physics and all those things are happening at the Large Hadron Collider. And yeah, well, how much of that stuff are we – and how complicated it for we're dummies I'm to not actually a, understand uh, not a learned scholar <laughs> of the sciences in that <laughs> what is actually deep going of a on. pool. We just get the conspiracies of them ripping open the, the uh, uh, tear in space-time. And, and I you can got string together enough, but I don't know the nuts and Creatures and are coming through yeah. because of CERN. And, uh, hey, man, who you knows? Know, the, no. That's Anybody that we, says they know that for a, a certainty, <laughs> I'm not saying it actually happened, but to say you know it couldn't happen but is back to you have to know. You know, you don't. It seems like there's no progress, but what if there is progress and we just don't know about? Something to think about too. Again, I wholeheartedly believe that there's progress that we don't get to see. Of mm -hmm. course, I think that's definitely. I want to hear you go through this one because I find this fascinating, but I kind of want to just soak it all up as you're. Yeah, I mean, this one's a little bit a little bit technical um, as far as just like... Uh, yeah, take your time because there's like two chunks to this This is one. more of just being aware that this stuff is getting ready to come out when it comes to a using AI for okay. researching ancient documents. In this case, cuneiform tablets from the Hittites. Okay. And so the AI is able to, from what I understand, it is able to scan these... Yeah. And with the, uh, you know, essentially uh, be able to, to uh, translate them into whatever language you need. 75% success rate. They're going to put these online. And we could just go and read what these tablets. That's been kind of a. Well, think of it this for way. For the average person, if you're interested 75. in it. You would have to know how to read cuneiform. I know, but think you of know. it from a research aspect. If it can read 75% of it and whatever fills in the other garbage, yeah. you as the researcher, 75% of your work's done. Yeah. And then you can do it, and then they can put it up, and it's 100%. Right, right. You know what I mean? Like, But I, I totally agree with what you're saying is it's I want to know what this says. I want to read that. Hopefully. Uh, because it's wild. It's, it's just going to allow access to people like us to just – go on some digital library and we'll get into it. Turkish researchers use artificial intelligence to read cuneic Hittite tablets. Thanks to a project implemented by uh, uh, Turkey in 1954, ancient Hittite tablets are being read for the first time using artificial intelligence. The project's initial phase, which involved reading, scanning, and digitizing Hittite cuneiform tablets, kept in the collections of the uh, Koram Museum the Istanbul Archaeology Museum and the Ankara Anatolian Civilization Museum has been finished. This outstanding project will aid research in quickly 
and easily analyzing ancient documents, speeding up the process of the decipherment within the framework. I mean, you had a dude that had to just sit and, like, what's his name? Uh, the uh, Planet X. Uh, the uh, oh, oh the God. OG of the ancient aliens, the you, whole ancient aliens. That happened theory. too fast. <laughs> I, know. I, I know his name. But Jeez, you had to read his books. Von Daniken, uh, uh, not Von Daniken. No, he it wasn't Von Daniken, but he Von Daniken von, studied. Yes. God, what is his name? Stone, it'll, if you know his name, throw it in our headphones. It'll anyway. it'll pop. Zachariah Sitchin. There you go, Sitchin. Good Jesus. Lord. So if you're you had itching, to be that itching guy for a Sitchin. who was a language expert and goes in, starts reading the Sumerian tablets, and then you that's the Anunnaki. That's the origins of what we understand like a, as all these Anunnaki conspiracies. J.R.R. Uh, Tolkien should have been that. He was he, always fascinated with language. Been. Imagine if he would have gone off and read all that, all the crap he would have written after right. uh, Lord of the Rings. And right. Not crap, but all the good crap. Yep. Jeez, um, <clears throat> could you imagine? So it's you wild. had to have someone like that that's going to actually take the time right. and decipher these and then write a book about it, right. which ended up becoming, you that know. might take my entire life while you're what writing was that book. in there were these people with advanced you know, they were from another place, right? Um, the twelfth planet, the Anunnaki, and so that's for another episode. He is also, you know, there's a whole uh, website about Sitchin's work where people do point out, um, you know, there's translations that he kind of leans into, one way or another, um, because you know how many people are going to be able to check his work and actually go back and so this is AI will be translating. And scanning these documents for to just spit out for researchers to go through and make their own conclusions and what if have the AI debates. is scanning it so it can fire up some like ancient alien like uh, wouldn't that machine be wild? right? If they're like human well, eyes will not be able to read this, but the AI can, and then you next thing you know, Optimus Prime and <laughs> I don't even know the pops, bad ones pops out of the jump. Yeah, the Decepticons. Pops out of the pyramid. Those guys. Uh, so 500 Hittite cuneiform tablets were translated at the, at the start of the project by photo photographing them in a high resolution and scanning them with 3D technology. According to the results of the testing, the AI success rate was 75.66%. Yeah, they had some fluctuations. I read further ahead of you, but... They had a little mm -hmm. fluctuation, but that was their, you know, kind of like average out success rate. They had some that were high as 95%. Mm. Wow. It's wild. And that's just like being able to scan every word and the pull it out. The accuracy of, of the translation, I think. So they have a human checking it that's already gone through and studied it, and then they're yeah. checking it with yeah, what the yeah, AI I'm is sure. out. Or, you know, if, if the um, the marking or character, you know, was just slightly, you know... I have a lot of variation in my handwriting, right? Yep. So even if you're striking these into those clay tablets or however they're impressing them on it, um, you know, there's going to be a little bit of variance and bring that to an AI, yeah, yeah. the level of variance that it might accept, uh, you know, as that a it can uh, actually scan. pure match. Yeah. Yep. I'm sure it'll have a little fluctuation, but... Um, yeah, it said they tried to decipher the, Hitt decipher the Hittite language manually, but this method pro proceeds more slowly and is prone to errors while AI works in a shorter time and with a low margin of error. Well, I mean, so, think about the exhaustion rate of somebody that's tasked with reading these and interpreting these, right? Yeah. So 
You want something that doesn't get tired. Yeah, absolutely. That's wild. So these are going to be set for digital archives within the scope of the project, and they are planning to enable AI to read more tablets in the future. Currently, with approximately 2.5 million points, uh, point shots, 86 of the tablets have been scanned in this project. So this isn't available just yet. The digital library hasn't been created, but it's coming. Keep your eye on that. Yeah. Um, if you're into cuneiform tablets, and the Hittites are a pretty, um, pretty fascinating, kind of in that uh, Fertile Crescent, and then kind of going up into the Levant, they're right in between, you know, like ancient Judea and Mesopotamia. They're like kind of right in that sweet spot of, um, you know, Syria and the and uh, the well, the sweet spot Anatolia. that we're aware of. Right. The whole world could be a sweet spot at this point. We have, That's you know what, what I mean. Showing. No, I mean, I guess I was saying more from. Are you talking about lidar on the tablets? Oh no, just that there's more than what we like. They're everywhere. Yeah, like That's, civilization is older, and it's and it's uh, yeah in places that 100 we're still finding under the water. Yep. Wonder, you know, the Marianas Trench, you get down there a couple thousand feet, and I mean a couple thousand feet, like a couple miles under the water. I mean, yeah, that's like the plates have been shifting and growing, and, you know, the expanding Expanding, Earth theory, we can talk about that at some point down the road on the Strange Road. The expanding Earth theory is another interesting one that when when I first encountered that kind of blew my mind, but you think about it. Yeah. Why wouldn't it? If we have magma in there, why don't we keep expanding out like a balloon that's being blown up? Right. Right. Liquid hot magma. So this last one is something that you had found. And I found this on Twitter. Yeah. So if you uh, and I'll give you a buzz through that. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to I'll try to knock this out fairly quick. And you can surmise it. Yeah. Um. I'll, I'll give a little background on just how I found it too. The uh, user I found on Twitter is um, handle is Klaus K L A U S, and his um, Twitter handle is actually at Tiny Klaus. K-L-A-U-S. This was the guy that Tom DeLong was blowing up. And, like, put him okay. and just blasted him one day last week. And he just went from, Blew like, up on Twitter. I mean, he probably already had a, a strong following. But, yeah. like, say this one. This is a 223,000-viewed tweet. Which is not, like, again, millions. But for somebody, it's just... The way DeLong described Klaus's uh, Twitter profile was... This guy's putting together disparate pieces of information. Mm. Like he's connecting these kind of strange threads. So I started following him, and he put up this four-page um, excerpt from this uh, collection. I don't know if it's a collection of stories from Fate Magazine from 1949, but the date kind of struck me. It, it brought me in, and just the headline, Tribal Memories of the Flying Saucers. Right? Like, okay, I'm in. You got me. <laughs> I, I want to hear that. Um, um, and, and basically... Um, I'll just read this first page to kind of set the tone, but most of you, this is the story by Ogamake. I don't know how to say the name, so I'm sorry, but I butchered it. But most of you who read this are probably white men of a blood only a century or two out of Europe. You speak in your papers of the flying saucers or mystery ships as something new and strangely typical of the 20th century. How could you but think otherwise? Yet if you had red skin and you were of a blood which had been born and bred of this land for untold thousands of years, you would know this is not true. You would know that your ancestors living in these mountains and upon these prairies for numberless generations had seen these ships before 
and had passed down the story and legends which are unwritten history of your people. You do not believe. Well, after all, why should you? But knowing your scornful unbelief, the storytellers of my people have closed their lips in bitterness against the outward flow of this knowledge. Yet, I have said to the storyteller, this, Now that the ships are being seen again, it is wise that we, the older race, keep our knowledge to ourselves. Thus for me, an American Indian, some of the sages among my people have talked, and if you care to, I shall permit you to sit down with us and listen. So he's talking to this reporter, this mm -hmm. non-Native American. You want to hear what's going on. And they start talking about Death Valley. It's revealing his history. Yeah. And he talks about, he goes, I have passed tobacco with a sacred plant to the aged chief of the Paiutes who sits directly across a tiny fire from me. Sprinkle some cornmeal upon the flames. You sprinkle a little holy water. While you sprinkle cornmeal and blow the smoke of the tobacco to the four corners, the compass points, in order to dispel bad luck and ask a blessing. The chief looked like a wrinkled mummy as he sat there. He said, you know, puffing on his pipe. So this is a very, very old Paiute chief elder. Um, and he said, yet his eyes were not that of, you know, unseeing eyes, but eyes which seemed to look back on long trails of time. He said his people had held the Inyo, Panamint, and Death Valley for untold centuries before the coming of the white men. Now, we sat in the valley which white men named Death, but for which the Paiutes called Tamisha, the Flaming Land. Here before me, as I face eastward, the funerals, mountains forming Death Valley's eastern wall, the funerals, were wrapped in purple-blue blankets. The old Paiute smoked from my tobacco for a long time before he re reverently blew the smoke to the four directions. Finally, he spoke, and he said, You ask me if we heard of the great silver airships in the days before white men brought their wagon trails into the land. And he said, Yes, Grandfather, I come seeking knowledge. He said, We, the Paiute Nation, have known of these ships for untold generations. We also believe that we know something of the people who fly them. They are called Havmasivs. They are people of the Panamints, and they are as ancient as Tamisha itself. Hmm. He smiled at my confusion. You do not understand. Of course not. You are not Paiute. Then listen closely, and I will lead you back along the trail of the dim past. When the world was young in this valley, which is now dry, parched desert, was a lush, hidden is this harbor. page two? Yeah. Okay, page two. Yeah. Lush, hidden harbor of a blue water sea, which stretched from halfway up these mountains to the Gulf of California. It is said that the Habmasivs came here in huge rowing ships. They found great caverns in the Panamints up in the mountains. And in them, they built one of their cities. At that time, California was this island, which the Indians of that state told the Spanish it was, and which they marked so on their maps. So the Habmasivs, living hidden in their city, ruled the sea with their fast rowing ships, trading with faraway peoples and bringing strange goods to the great quarry, said to still exist in the caverns. I'd like to know how long ago that body of water was there. If uh, we could find that out, look, uh, somebody could hit us up. Yeah. When the Death Valley was a body of water. When Death Valley was this body of water. How could... I mean, you would get a pretty good idea of how ancient these people were well, living up in this mountain with all this technology, which the Sierra Nevada, just that whole range is steeped. They in talk about the Spanish mystery. being there. And they were, yeah, right. Well, well, the Indians told the Spanish the same thing, right. I guess is what they're saying there. That um, they're, that, yes. But the chief goes on to say that, you know, as centuries rolled past, the climate began to change. The water in the lake went down until there was no longer a way to the sea. First, the way was broken, only by the southern mountains over the tops of which goods could be carried. But as time went by, the water continued to shrink, till the day came when only a dry crust was all that remained of the great blue lake. And now we're left with Death Valley, right? Then the desert came, and the fire god began to walk across Tamisha, the flaming land. 
When the Habmasivs could no longer use the great rowing ships, they began to think of other means to reach the world beyond. I suppose that is how it happened. We know that they began to use flying canoes. At first they were not large, these silvery ships with wings. They moved with a slight whirring sound and a dipping movement like an eagle. Weird. The passing centuries brought other changes. Tribe after tribe swept across the land, fighting to possess it for a while and passing like the storms of sand. In their mountains, still in the cavern city, the Habmasivs dwelt in peace, far removed from the conflict. Sometimes they were seen at a distance in their flying ships or riding on the snowy white animals which took them from ledge to ledge up the cliffs. What could that be? <laughs> snowy desert? white animals. In the desert? But they're up in the mountains, right? Where it's, it's still snowy? Death Valley where they're seeing them. Where they're seeing them up, way up in, into I, the mountains? I mean, I get or what? I mean, it takes a while. When you this drive is why this story blew my mind. Like the I was Sierra like, Nevada, below it's all desert. But then right. you start going up to Yosemite, and there's snow in like April and, right. and March. Just it's just right. packed with snow. Right. So it's got gotcha. you. <coughs> it's wild. So isn't they're it? living inside this inside the mountains. The city they built right. in the Panamints in the Damn. mountains. And they're riding these snowy white animals that jump them from ledge to ledge up the cliffs. And the the chief says, we have never seen these strange animals at any other place. To these people, the passing centuries brought only larger and larger ships, moving always more silently. So they're getting better. They're refining this as they're going. And this guy asks him, have you ever seen a Habmasov? And the chief says, no, but we have many stories of them. This is like Lemurian folk tales there are reasons because lemuria why. was part of a giant island that was connected with california maybe at one time you know is could it the, is it that lemurian i don't know enough about Lemuria. leftovers I, from could, lemuria that maybe lemuria in this are the same thing and were represented were by two different we'd have to compare them yeah well, lemuria the was a giant up. continent with Probably a lot of different cultures. If it's like it, an Atlantis. I mean, yeah, like Easter Island. Maybe is there were a couple of them: Atlantis, Lemuria, the Habmasivs. Yeah. Um, but so they're building better ships. They're getting better at this, right? And uh, so he asked if he had ever seen one. He said no. Wow. And he said, um, but we have many stories of them. There are reasons why um, one does not become too curious. And this guy goes reasons. And the chief said, yes, these uh, strange people have weapons. One is a small tube, which stuns one with a prickly feeling like a rain of cactus needles. One it's cannot like move shocker. for hours. Like a shocker. Whoa. Cattle prod. Like like sleep paralysis. Yeah. I'm saying, um, you know, kind of tingly. And during this time, the mysterious ones vanish up the cliffs. Just After they shoot boop. you, they're like, we got to get out of here. So they're running and hiding, right? It sounds like some Wakanda technology. Right? And then they said, but they have another weapon. Um, it's a long silvery tube. And they said, when that's pointed at you, death falls immediately. And this guy says, but tell me about these people. What do they look like? How do they dress? And he says, they are beautiful people. Their skin is a golden tint and a headband holds back their long, dark hair. They dress always in a white, fine-spun garment which wraps around them and is draped upon one shoulder. Pale sandals are worn upon their feet. His voice trailed away. He's puffing on his pipe, and he says, um, the old man seemed to have fallen in a trance, and he asked him one more question. He says, any Paiute ever spoken to Habmasov, or were the Paiutes here when the great rowing ships first appeared? And he takes a really long time to answer him. He's, the guy thinks he you know, forgot about him. He's like, okay, well, I guess I got enough out of this. This is amazing. And the, and the chief starts talking again after he blows his smoke in the four directions. He goes, 
Yes, once in the not-so-distant past, but many generations before the coming of the Spanish, a Paiute chief lost his bride by sudden death. He's so overwhelmed with grief, uh, he thought of the Habmasivs and their long tube of death. So he wants to die, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so he tells his people, I'm out of here, bids them farewell. They're weeping, crying. He's like, I'm out of here. I'm so, you know, beside myself with grief. And so... um, None of the Habmasivs uh, appeared until the chiefs started scaling the Panamints. You know, that they're riding up in these white animals. These, I'm thinking of like a snow leopard or something bouncing around like Tigger up there. Um, but he starts climbing up it, and one of the men in white appeared suddenly before him with the long tube. He like motions the chief back, and the chief openly makes this gesture of like, bring it on. I'm wrecked already, <laughs> buddy. Bring it. <laughs> I'm the chief. My bride died. Screw my kingdom. Yeah. It's like Danny McBride burning it down and <laughs> righteous gemstones. Yep, nothing to lose. And um, and the man in white made like a long singing whistle and other have-missives appeared, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, they spoke together in a strange tongue. Then they regarded the chief thoughtfully. And finally they made a sign to him like, take him in. Come with us. We're going to go to our city. And it says, many weeks after his people had mourned him for dead, the Paiute chief came back to his camp. Wow. He had been in the giant underground valley of the Habnesses, oh. he said, where white lights, which burnt night and day, never gone out, didn't need any fuel, lit an ancient city of marble beauty. Yeah, so these are like these these like inner earth societies, and you Ant hear about people. these really advanced... Doesn't it make sense, though? Living in the honeycomb earth. Doesn't it make sense a little bit? Like your water recedes and all these things that were covered by water come out? If something hits the planet, you're probably the only ones that are going to survive. Depending on how far deep you're in. Yeah. Impact craters, as Tom told us. Do you know what this made me think, though, when they're fair, you know, rowing around in the oceans and they're going a bajillion miles an hour? They went to Egypt. They went to here, and they went down into the caves and Kincaid and in, in the Grand Canyon. That's Mount uh, Mount Shasta. Like how crazy too. would that be? Right. So exactly, Kincaid. I mean, I brought have... bad souvenirs from Thailand and New Zealand. I'm sure they did from when they went over there in their right. sweet silver canoe. You have uh, the Grand Canyon. Right. You have the Half Masus in the Sierra Nevada. Just go north in the Sierra Nevadas is Mount Shasta. That's the holdouts of. Oh, I've heard ancient of, yeah. civilizations yep. living inside that way deep underground with these Lemurian bases. They're left over. The, they left, and uh, you know some of the biggest like raw crystal mines and just steeped in weird yeah. ancient lore. California's got the Sierra Nevadas are trippy. Yeah, if you haven't been through there, oh man, that's a journey. Oh, it's just wonderful. And there's Do it at so sunset many different or types sunrise. Of, Get it. It's great anytime, but my yeah. gosh, like hit one of those golden hours too. It's the really desert, fun. pine forest, catch a storm out forest. there. You'll see a nice rainbow. Yeah. Um, the story doesn't have much left to it, but it just you know the chief's in there. He he learns their language. He's in their marble city with inside the mountain. Um, he learns the history of these mysterious the people, city. giving them in turn the language and legends of the Paiutes. Right. So he exchanges information with them, and he said uh, he would have liked to remain there forever. He he never would have left, but they right. they told him he should return and use his new knowledge for his people. Tell everybody what you saw. Yeah, and he asked the chief, the guy reporting the story in the in the journal. He says, uh, "Do you believe the chief?" You know, he asked the chief he's speaking to, "Do you believe the other chief?" And um, he said, "I don't know." You know, the chief's like, "I do not know." When a man is lost in Tamisha and the fire god is walking across the salt crust, 
Um, strange dreams like clouds fog through his mind. No man can breathe the hot breath of the fire god and remain long uh, sane. Of course, the Paiutes have thought of this. No people knows the moods of Tamisha better than they. You asked me to tell you the legend of the flying ships. I have told you what the young men of the tribe do not know, for they no longer listen to the stories of the past. Mm-hmm. So this chief elder saying, hey, our own tribe doesn't care. Right. That might be why we've lost some history, right? That's wild. Oh, yeah. It's that um, oral tradition. If the younger generation doesn't continue to tell the story, it's yeah. over. Well, and this is, like, just such a good way to end it. The chief said, you know, you're asking me if I believe. He goes, um, I answer this. He goes, turn around. Look behind you at that wall of the Panamints, you know, the wall of mountains. How many giant caverns could open there, being hidden by the light and shadows of the rocks? How many could open outward and inward and never be seen, the arrow-like pinnacles before them? How many ships could swoop down like an eagle from the beyond on summer nights when the fires of the furnace sands have closed away the valley from the eyes of the white man? How many of the Habmasivs could live in their eternal peace, away from the noise of the white man's guns and their unscalable stronghold? This has always been a land of mystery. Nothing can change that, not even white man with his flying engines. For should they come too close to the wall of the Panamints, a sharp wind like the flying arrow can shear off a wing. Tamisha hides its secrets well, even in winter, but no man can pry into them when the fire god draws the hot veil of his breath across the passes. I must still answer your question with my mind in doubt, for we speak of a weird land. White man does not yet know it as well as the Paiutes, and we have held it in awe. It is still the forbidden Tamisha, land of the flaming earth. The author of the story is Navajo Indian. Wow. So the land of Tamisha and the Havasu people. Yeah. Havmasu. That's a new one, man. Uh, That (laughs) is Dude, I was like... So I didn't want to go to bed. I want to start buying every book I possibly can about the Paiutes now. There's got to be some nuggets unless... This is why I need an implanted brain chip to get all this. There's just... Right. <laughs> can I live one life as a like a monk, well, but I we won't can study necessarily or religious? episodes of Strange Happenings and we'll eventually learn is there like a monk, more and more. <laughs> is there like a school of monks for like ufology? Like not religion, but just for UFO schools? Like... Get all the distractions out of the way, so I can just focus on just the UFO topics and the, and the strange happenings topics. and the impact craters and the weather anomalies that come along with those and the doppelgangers and the. Well, there's too much out there. It's Brozone University. There's a lot out there, you know, and you got to cast a cast a net and kind of bring it in, and that's what we're trying <laughs> to do with the strange happenings, right? We're trying to like catch a couple of these big fish a week in stories that we see and go, hey, you know what? I, I like reading this. I'd like to hear it in a podcast because right now I don't have time to read things I'd like to read, but I'm reading things I like to read, yep. right? So we're kind of doing that for you. So, you know, in your work break, you can kind of just put this on and listen to it. You could have Morgan Freeman do it if you download that AI app that reads it. and like That's the idea. Have you seen that? That's that an app. Was, that was creepy. You can scan any book and change the Pretty voice. Pretty realistic. To, you imagine Arnold reading a book to you? <laughs> I would never listen to it. <laughs> I just couldn't. I'd take one. Arnold Schwarzenegger, if you're watching, which you're not. <laughs> we know he's not. How could he? There's no way. Uh, but if you are, yeah. <laughs> I want that app. I know you're not. So that was a fun one, Bob. It was great. Good. Great stories. Yeah, I don't think there's um, anything else that was on our radar this week. Had a good time. Uh, as always, uh, you know, tune in uh, later tonight, actually. Coming up in here a in while. like basically an hour. Yeah, we have. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Uh, we have uh, 
Uh, Rhonda and Sue. Shout out. Thank Rhonda you, Rhonda and Sue, and Sue for uh, Watching, tuning in tonight. Commented, whatever you did. Uh, tuning we in appreciate live. It. Rhonda and Sue, what's happening? Hey. Um, Help me, Rhonda. <laughs> Run around, Sue. <laughs> Those are aliases uh, that other famous artists uh, came up with, so I can't take credit for that. But if they are not 100% <laughs> representative of you, I apologize. But great names. Yes, Ron and, and we Sue, appreciate you. you. Um, and so tonight, in like really an hour, we're going live again. We have two shows tonight. Well, we'll and, we're doing something different on the next uh, one, right? We have a swap cast with Jeremiah Byron from the Bigfoot Society. Jeremiah so, was a Byron. Jeremiah. Can't wait to talk to you. Uh, I wonder if he's ever thought tonight. about using that as a tag. So if you guys are hip to uh, Bigfoot Society, you're going to want to tune into this. Uh, but this I'm going to tune in. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to watch. Uh, but as always, you can find us on all our social media platforms at The Strange Road. All of them. Uh, Twitter. We have a Insta. Facebook group Facebook. that has been created, but it hasn't been shared yet. But we're working on it. We're going to get kind of some of the branding and stuff worked out. It's in the process. Um, but it's it's coming. It takes and, time. It's uh, frustrating. We, uh, it's frustrating. Would love for you guys to hit that subscribe button, hit the notification bell. Please. The solid white one, because I have under, I understand that the solid white one is it's, what will push to your device and actually it's when we go It's just the button live, you want to push. It it's that does everything The clear button. one apparently doesn't do anything. Yeah. But, uh, or I'm just dumb, which is I mean, more if than this likely was, the latter. If this was me and Mike playing video games, I would say it's the continuing saga of Mike not hitting buttons. I, I am. Because I'm always waiting on the pause menu or, like, you know, the, the unneeded, like, inter, intermission cut and be like, Mike, hit <laughs> buttons. Let's get to the, So what I'm trying to say is, you know, if you want to watch us, hit you're the going, button. man, I didn't know about this. I didn't hear we're trying to help you hear about it if you want to hear more from us. Uh, if you don't, cool. Yep. Don't subscribe. Don't like and it. Don't uh, hit the notification bell. I get it. But if you do and you're kind of getting bummed out, you keep missing these, it's pretty easy to do. Just hit that all-encompassing big white button yep. on and uh, YouTube. Bub's on Twitter on our at The Strange yep. Road and at Bub Brandley. Yep. He does most up. of our Twitter stuff. Uh, Stoner, our producer uh, on the ones and twos, we kind of forgot to introduce man. ourselves and everybody. That's, that's all right. Uh, in the beginning We're, of the show, <laughs> I think we got a lot going on, and we just uh, kind of uh, yeah, we just jumped right into past it. it. But you can follow Kyle on. Uh, you can follow Stoner on at Kyle Stonerd on Insta. The Wizard uh, at Mikey Leesner on Insta. Insta for me. Yeah. Um, and then we have uh, the podcast, which has been the audio platform. So and it's been great everywhere. It's on. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, uh, Wherever. everywhere. Wherever. Yeah. And while you're on there, make sure, especially in Spotify and Apple Podcasts, give us that five-star rating, uh, five-star bust. Uh, write a review, too. Uh, if you got an another couple minutes, really does help us yeah. out. All those pieces of engagement, you think, man, why do I have to do this? It, Liking there's the AI on the other side of this trying to determine yeah. whether we're <laughs> whether, something that other people like yeah. yourselves would want to see. So if you think other people would like to see this... Again, that's how you help us get it to them, and that's how you help us uh, keep making better shows for you. Yeah, and like the videos, subscribe. Please do. And yeah. share them. Um, Again, and we appreciate it. Yep, All of it. Love the interaction, but this has been another fun one. Fantastic. Another episode of The Strange Happenings in the Can. And we're going to rename be... my dog to the Half Missives. <laughs> that's, that's, that's Watch a good... him take off in a little flying canoe like, you shouldn't have done it, dumbass. That's a good hamster name. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's good. Uh, so that was great. 
Bigfoot Society coming up. Yep. Uh, in Byron. really like an, an hour or so. That's We're right. going to get prepared for that. We'll see you guys in a little bit. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye.